Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for September 9th, 2021, the 20-years-since-9-11 edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm joined by John Dickerson of CBS's Sunday Morning and Face the Nation, maybe. Are you still hosting Face, guest hosting that? I'm not still hosting Face, but but as, you know, but after my um, foreign exchange student period this summer, I think I'm considered a... uh, a trusted member of the family. Okay, that's John Dickerson. And, of course, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hey, guys. This week, it is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. How has America changed? How did it change America? Then the Democratic budget and infrastructure bills are on a knife's edge or a knife edge. Is it a knife's edge or a knife edge? I'm not sure. Will the Biden administration get them passed then men are shunning college at an astonishing rate. There are a million fewer men at college than there were just five years ago. Why is that? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And, dear listeners, favorite time of the year, our conundrum show is coming up every year. Regular listeners know we spend one week just talking about important questions like, would you rather be a fish or a tree? Or, Should you put dirty clothes on a freshly washed body or clean clothes on your filthy body? And we spend an entire show delightfully reveling in that, usually with a great guest. And we're going to do our conundrum show, of course, this year. And we need your conundrums. What are the things that have troubled you this year? What are the puzzles you've been dealing with? What are the ethical issues, the, the trivialities and the most serious issues that you have been grappling with around your dinner table Go to slate.com slash conundrum and please tell us your conundrum. Slate.com slash conundrum. 9-11 was yesterday and it was also incredibly long in the past. A quarter of Americans alive today were born after 9-11, yet it lives with us every day. It's shaping and misshaping our world more than any event, more than COVID, more than the rise of Trump and more than the rise of China. And we want to use today to look back at the event itself and how it changed us and what, what has America has gotten right and wrong since then. So I want to talk first about what you guys remember from that day. Emily, what's the first thing you remember about 9-11? I was dropping my older son at daycare for the first time And, you know, all nervous about that. And one of the daycare teachers said that he thought that um, that something had happened in New York. And the daycare director kind of shut him down from talking about it in front of the kids was just like, don't, you know, we're not going to be talking about that. And so I went home, not really aware anything was going on. And then I went for a run. And when I was coming back from my run, someone was painting um, a house on a street in New Haven. And I heard the radio really loudly saying that all the flights in the country were grounded. And I thought, huh. So I had this sort of like weird um, layered awareness of what had happened. And then, of course, when I went inside, um, it all became all too clear. Did the daycare shut down? No. What's, What's your first memory of it, John? You know, just on that point of the daycare not shutting down, Garrett Graff, uh, who's written an oral history of 9-11 and and writes um, really wisely about the human side of it and then also the national security and kind of um, everything that happened that day, the security part, and um, has in his piece in The Atlantic a a discussion of, of how people reacted to the first plane hitting. And how basically there's this one ferry captain who, after the first plane hits, he docks the ferry in New York uh, at the southern tip of Manhattan. Everybody gets off and goes to work, even though the first building is burning. Like Bob Mueller had a meeting. Uh, he was just at the FBI. He went on to his next thing that the fir- that we were we now think of how it's changed us so much. We are so sensitized when we hear an explosion or, a, you know, we think it's either one of two things, uh, terrorism or uh, a mass shooting. Um, but we have, we have our, our twitch muscles have changed so dramatically. You know, Emily, you're what the, what you're describing, like the world didn't stop immediately. And that was because that was a very different world. I was at home. I had gotten an email that morning or very closely before that I was covering the Bush administration, chewing us out for not 
beating Robert Novak, the columnist, on some incredibly infinitesimal detail about capital gains and what the Bush administration was going to do relative to the tax treatment of capital gains. And for me, that email, uh, and so then I had the TV on because in my office at home, there was I always had the TV on. It was before I cured myself of having cable on while I worked. And so I was watching it in real time. And, and then Anne was upstairs. And then when the second plane hit, I, I knew it was... So I drove into the office. And as I drove in... I remember the, on the radio, I think I remember this, on the radio there were reports or I was getting reports from the office that there might be another plane that was going after the State Department or that was there were more there was more of this to come. And I remember opening the sunroof and trying to look up to see if there were planes in the area. Yeah. I remember going into the Slate office in D.C. and Brian Curtis, who was a colleague at the time, said man, you know, have you, did you see? And I thought he was talking about, there was a story that day in the Washington Post, or there there was a story brewing about how Michael Jordan was about to return to the Wizards to play, or he was just leaving the Wizards. I can't remember which one it was. And I was like, and I said something about Jordan. And he's like, no, no, there's a plane that just is sticking out of the World Trade Center. And then I just spent the day walking around Washington trying to find chasing down rumors and and then ultimately like the the thing i really remember is getting my daughter from her babysitter my daughter who was was then just i guess eight months old just spending the late afternoon with her and how comforting that was just to spend the late afternoon with her um i did did I should add just one other thing is that my partner covering the White House at the time was Jay Carney, and he was the time he was the news magazine pool representative on Air Force One. So he was on that leg, that first leg from the president's event at the, I guess it's an elementary school to uh, whichever Air Force base I'm now forgetting, they flew him to to secure him. So he was on the plane. So we were trying to figure out what's going on with him and trying to figure out what to get him, you know, like sending questions in and just trying to get information from him. They ultimately kicked him off the plane and reduced the entire press corps down to one person. Um, but that was another, you know, part of the, the scramble of that day. And then I should note that John uh, McKeon, my cousin or my wife's cousin, was in one of the towers and uh, made it out safely. But in the scramble of reporting that day, I talked to him about um, his experience. And I remember him talking about coming down the stairs with his arm on the shoulder of the person in front of him to get through uh, the smoke and to get out to safety. Did you guys know anyone who died on 9-11? No. So this, one of the stories I really remember most reporting in my life was, I didn't either, was... I was surprised at the time. This is I wrote it at the time. I think when the belief was there were about six thousand dead, and it turned out, you know, that fortunately the number was less than half of that. It was only about a little less than three thousand. But it was a study of how how many Americans knew someone who died on nine eleven, and the truth was that almost nobody did. That that the number of Americans, less than one percent of Americans, knew someone who died on nine eleven. But if you look at it. Almost every American statistically knew someone who knew someone who died on 9-11. It was a tragedy at the second degree. If you study like how big our human social networks are and how they interact with each other, it's like actually the chances that you knew somebody is really small. And so it doesn't personally like affect most of us. But almost all of us know someone who was personally affected by it. And I think that that made it a particularly vivid tragedy for lots of people. So my own view of 9-11 is that it pretty quickly developed that it was going to be a terrible event in terms of its um, political implications for the world and especially in the United States. You know, the sort of fear of lots more surveillance and this huge concern about anti-Muslim sentiment blossoming in this uncalled for scary way. But I can't remember how that developed like in the days after, like how much I just felt a sense of grief and mourning and, you know, like real concern for the people affected and for the country or how much it was just apparent from the very start that it was going to have this malignant effect on us as a country. 
I don't think we realized that immediately, in part because, A, everyone was in a state of heightened anxiety for so long. And so we were just distracted by our own selves. We weren't, I think, necessarily thinking about our place in the world. B, there was this global world support that mobilized for the United States and then this global support that mobilized for the attack on al-Qaeda and on the Taliban that was so universal. And so it, it took a while to realize that this was going awry. It took a while to realize the the crimes that were being committed in our name, particularly the torture that was going on. It took a, a while for, I, I actually don't think until we went to war in Iraq or till the war drums in Iraq started beating, maybe six months before we went to war in Iraq, I'm not sure it was clear just how bad this was going to be for the national foreign policy. I, I think it took a while, Emily. I don't think it was immediate at all. I've, I, that's my recollection as well, is that the human toll and also one of the, you know, one of the challenges and that people, I think, are wisely writing about now as they look back 20 years is the, is the unanimity, um, not 100% unanimity, which means I may not be using that word correctly, but the overwhelming kind of um, collective view about what should happen in response to this militarily. You know, I remember a Saturday Night Live skit in which they're at some party and everybody knows the names of of cities in Afghanistan that are going to be bombed. That it was that it was not the the story of overreach that then came to be the case in Iraq. I mean, heck, even Iraq wasn't the story of overreach until after mission accomplished. Um, but the the human stories and the picture of the falling man and the the anguish of those posters or the, the, the pictures on the uh, chain link fence and, and at the armory of people wondering if their loved ones had just been lost as opposed to killed. Uh, I did a story on Richard Drew, the AP photographer, who took the picture of the falling man. And what I didn't know until I did the interview with him was that there was a man who had lost his fiance, but hadn't they hadn't found her body. And so he went to the AP and sat down with Drew, who took pictures of of some of the people who either jumped or were pushed out of the building and went through all the pictures and found his fiance in the pictures and that that was part of his closure. And there were, you know, literally thousands and thousands of stories like that. Um, and I feel like that, that was the overwhelming recollection for me of that period. Right. And New York was just so wrenched and all the people who, you know, were, not sure where to go that day, and just like the chaos of that was so overwhelming. The f- most remarkable fact to me about 9-11 is, looking back, is that it was followed by almost nothing here in the U.S. That I was sure when it happened, oh, there's going to be, this kind of terrorism is going to be a daily occurrence, a monthly occurrence. And it's it's not that we've avoided, uh, it's not that we've avoided terrorism, it's not that we've avoided mass death or avoided you know, terrible people doing acts of violence against civilians. We've had it. We've had school shootings. We've had, we've had plenty of people who've died pointlessly murdered by, by terrible people. It's that this particular thing of the outsider, the outside foreign terrorist act has not been repeated here effectively. I can't even, I mean, has there even been one example? There were the attempted shoe, shoe yeah, bombing. Yeah, there were things. They just weren't mass events in the same way. And the notion that it was going to become periodic and regular just never came to pass. But it was, I mean, and that we, we obviously will talk at some, uh, at some point about the accounting of all that's happened in the 20 years, because the question is whether, you know, I mean, whether that's a interesting coincidence or whether it's the result of of policy. I mean, obviously, the places like Times Square and and where there was a uh, you know an attempted bombing and all the domestic attempts at bombing in the U.S. and there were ones we didn't even know about, including around the time of the shoe bomber. There was the shoe bomber, the underwear bomber. There was the idea that somebody was going to put plastic explosives in printer cartridges. For several weeks during the Bush administration, every morning they thought. They had intelligence that there was an Al-Qaeda plot to blow up a plane from London to New York or London to Washington, but the Brits wouldn't let them take measures to um, 
announce it or to, to take any measures that would that would identify that they knew because they wanted to follow the intelligence they had back to the planners. And so for several weeks, the Bush administration spent the first six hours of every day worried that the flights from London back to the States, um, one of them was going to one of them was going to blow up. But one other quick point, the bookends of the 20 years, when you think about the greatest threat to America in terrorism now is domestic terrorism. And you think of the events of 9-11 and the lawmakers who joined on the steps of the Capitol in a sign of unanimity, and then the riot of January 6th on the steps of the Capitol. Just in terms of the bookending of this age, those are two things that, that stand out for me. Yeah, and I think that it's people have said, and I think credibly, that the misinformation, the way misinformation spread about 9-11 and this lies and crazy conspiracy theories spread about 9-11 are prefigure and are important to the way misinformation has spread since and the way particularly conservative media networks have spread misinformation of whether about elections, voting, or about COVID. The ecosystem of misinformation began to blossom in a serious way in this country after 9-11. Emily, do you think that going to this, this point that we haven't had these attacks and clearly reasons that we haven't had these attacks are we have hardened the country we've made it much harder for people to get in we have a much stronger surveillance state we've allowed law enforcement to be much more aggressive about pursuing leads regarding people who are potential terrorists and pursuing networks and we've we've just gotten a lot better uh, at surveillance we've also become more brutal and we've murdered people with drone strikes all over the world. Uh, do you think are these prices worth paying? Well, I mean, let's continue thinking about the prices for a minute. So we have all these hundreds of people in Guantanamo Bay who essentially became, you know, received effective. Some people have been repatriated, but a lot of people who received effective life sentences with almost no due process or certainly like real important due process. There was the Patriot Act, the expanding of the government's police powers in this way that added to all the surveillance. There was a lot of anti-Muslim prejudice and watching and suspicion. I mean, I wonder if our own sort of dawning awareness would have taken place more quickly if, you know, we were Muslims and had dark skin, because I think that people really experienced the fear of a lot of other Americans in a profound way because of that. So I feel like it's important to have a full accounting. And, you know, one thing I just find deeply frustrating about terrorism, you know, I understand how terrifying it is. Like, I share that feeling. It's incredibly dramatic and scary. But it also takes us away from doing the much more sort of boring, cost-effective things that allow us to calculate risk that would actually save more lives and and cause a lot less loss of blood and treasure abroad. I mean, it it sort of changed our priorities in this way that I think has been enormously destructive. And so without, you know, I don't want to, I'm glad that we've prevented some of these attacks. I don't want to take that away from law enforcement. I think it's really hard to do that work. And we often don't credit it enough. But I also think like the overall effect has, has warped us. And not in some overall rational sense saved the most lives. Right. And and it has economic costs too, which is one, when I think about one of the big costs of 9-11, I think about the students who don't come here, that it became yes. much harder for you to become a student, particularly from certain parts of the Muslim world, but in general, it became much harder for people to come to this country to study and then to stay and to be, to be contributors to the American economic growth. And that's a loss for all of us. And we don't account for it because we instead we're accounting for the, the attacks prevented. And also the, 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 the cost that each of us pays in time and stress for having to, to endure certain forms of surveillance and certain forms of intrusion when we want to travel or when we want to go in a building. And those are genuine costs that we all endure. And, and you put that, you weigh that against the attacks that don't happen. And it's sort of like, well, yeah, and you don't, you never want to say, oh, we should have had more attacks so that we could all be a little bit freer. But there is a way in which I think we it would be better if we were all a little bit freer. Um, and there were there was we accepted certain certain higher risks than we were willing to accept right that, now. That one seems a closer calculation than some of the other ways in which 
I mean, if you think militarily, there were obvious successes. The bin Laden raid, which I've just spent some time going over again, was an extraordinary um, operation, not just in a military sense, but also in terms of the effective um, use of several different branches of government over the course of an extremely long period of time um, from within the White House to the CIA and so forth. And that plus decimating al-Qaeda are would be considered military victories. But when you think about losing essentially two wars and the warping America's place in the world, not just relative to where it was on September 10th, right. but as General McChrystal points out in, in his thinking back about this period of time, it's not just measuring America's place in the world relative to the 10th of September. It's measuring America's place in the world relative to how it could have seized on the goodwill on the 11th of September. And his argument is essentially that in retrospect, and he admits this is hindsight, obviously, um, that if America had gone across the world as the aggrieved party and built relationships in Muslim countries and exhibited some restraint before uh, going into Afghanistan, that it would have been able to lock in that that all of that goodwill, or not all of it, but some major portion of that goodwill. So you have to look at that. And then the other part is our moral standing in the world, which is that when it came out that America was engaging in torture, and then when it came out, uh, the ways in which America was, without going through the regular process, engaging in surveillance of, of its own citizens, and all of those things that America dealt away, such to the point that ISIS could behead prisoners in Guantanamo jumpsuits as a way to underscore um you know, the, this moral debate that was going on in the world. And regardless of where you fall on that, um, America's moral position now, uh, even as it leaves Afga- Afghanistan, is it is a much more modeled picture than it was for America after the 11th or on the 11th. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on every Slate Gab Fest. You also support the great journalism that Slate does when you become a member of Slate Plus. You also get zero ads on any Slate podcast and some bonus episodes of various shows that Slate does. It's just a dollar for the first month. You can sign up by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Our Slate Plus topic this week, following the death of Michael K. Williams, the actor who played the indelible, indelible Omar Little on the TV show The Wire. We're going to talk about TV characters who have been indelible to us, who've met the most, most to us. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus today to become a member. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. President Biden has until the end of this month, more or less, more or less, to try to get his $3.5 trillion spending and taxing reconciliation bill through Congress, through the narrow Democratic majority in the House and the 50-50 split in the Senate. He also has that time to get the House to approve the $1 trillion infrastructure bill that has passed the Senate. So, John, these things 
you know, back in May or back in March, I somehow, because I'm an idiot, thought like, oh, this is all going to be done and dusted by June. <laughs> and here we are in late September and unclear whether any of this stuff is going to happen at all. Wait, so, it's not late September. All right. Here we <laughs> are in September. In September. It's, it, I can tell you that it won't be done before late September. Let me put it that way. Uh, how are these, first of all, how are these bills linked and why are they... Why are they struggling, or are they actually struggling, or is this just this just kabuki? No, no, they're struggling. They're struggling. I mean, we should just uh, fly up into the clouds for a minute to look at two of the big th- things at stake here. One is not just what on the infrastructure bill. This was the creation of a bipartisan effort. It has uh, plenty of flaws, but it is what people say they would like when they talk about bipartisanship in Washington, both sides coming together, giving up some things, the president being engaged with Republicans. Now, there are lots of caveats here. A lot of the Republicans that are involved are not up for re-election, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But something got through the Senate, and the president claimed that this was not just success for this particular bill, but it was a success for his ability to get Congress and the, and the whole shooting match to work again. And that democracy can work again. I mean, he really loaded a lot of chips on that. And it was always premature because bills can't just go through the Senate and then get him to sign it. It had to go through the House, too. And he had, in fact, linked, before taking them apart, the infrastructure bill to this other sweeping now $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation package trying to stitch together and repair the social safety net. So everything from universal pre-K to community college, child tax credit, uh, also a huge climate piece, an attempt to get 80% of electricity emissions free by 2030. And there's paid family leave. There's dental benefits in, in Medicare. There's immigration reform. I mean, it's got everything in there in the most sweeping um, sense. And the greatest tension here comes in two places. One, in the House, where moderates want to pass this infrastructure bill before the big sweeping budget bill. But Nancy Pelosi has uh, would like it to go the other way around because she knows that only if you use the leverage of the popular thing, popular among members of Congress, you have to use that as leverage to get the budget through. But in the Senate, you've got two Democrats, Cinema and Manchin, who... Um, don't want to spend $3.5 trillion on this budget. Maybe they don't even want to spend a trillion. And if they don't vote, you can't pass it, even though uh, you might have 48 other Senate Democratic votes for something that just takes 50 votes to get through the Senate. So Manchin seemed to stick a knife in the bill this week. He wrote a Wall Street Journal piece saying he wouldn't go for $3.5 trillion. He called for a pause, a pause, while uh, we assess the impact of Delta variant and the impact of inflation. Like, is it is it wise to spend all this extra money if the economy is overheated? Is that going to overheat the economy too much? Do you think, Emily, this is this is Pose that he really is wants it to be a one trillion dollar package, or do you think this is just him setting up for him to be get five hundred billion cut out of it and then and then claim a victory, but but still go along with the overarching Democratic goal here? I mean, I guess the latter. But who knows? It sort of seems obligatory. Like his job is to not go along with what the first um, ask is and to set himself up in opposition to progressives. And that's how he both sees his role, I think, genuinely, and also appeals to his constituents in West Virginia. And then he he likes spending money, right? I mean, he believes, I think, in a lot of these actual platforms, a lot of what they're actually going to do with the money. What I find kind of frustrating about this, especially after Jamel's points last week about when you spread this money out for 10 years, it's not actually such a gigantic amount of money. And when you look at what they're actually spending it on, what are the specific objections, right? Is this just kind of like you have to knock some of the money out because three and a half trillion dollars sounds like a ton of money? Or is Manchin really going in very carefully and editing out the inefficiencies and waste, which surely are there somewhere because that's how the government operates? It's definitely the latter, Emily. (laughs) One doubts it. Like Uh what? He just wants to take away dental coverage for like some particular person who already has it in some state. Anyway, I just (gasps) right. It just has this sense of like, okay, this is what Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema do. The senator from Arizona. And like it feels almost like a scripted move. Yeah, John, I mean, John, I just want to push on that. Is is Manchin and Sinema's job to make it as hard as possible 
to pass the bill, but to also ensure that the bill get passed, it gets passed at a reasonable level. Or are they not really in this as a game? It, it feels, Manchin always feels to me like you can analyze him by thinking about like, what would a politician from the 1970s be doing? Right. right. And so he's acting like a regular old politician, which is like, I'm, I'm just making things difficult, but I'm going to go along with it, but I got to well, make it really difficult and get as many yes. concessions as possible and then pass it. But is that too uh, risky a game to play? Well, I think just to to sew up what I was rambling on about before, the reason is if something if the only thing that can pass the Senate is some anemic version of the three point five trillion dollars spending, let's say it's less than a trillion, then what happens is you you lose a lot of your liberals, people who say if it doesn't have the environmental provisions I want, it's not going to pass. And so then you have a situation where Schumer and Schumer needs a bunch of Republican votes. So is he going to get Republican votes to pass something with only 50 votes? Doubtful, given the way the Republican Party works right now. So the more Republican votes you need, and 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 Nancy Pelosi faces a similar uh, challenge. The more Republican votes you need, the more you have to give away, because the more Republicans are going to say, "Hey, if you want my vote, I want this in the bill." And John Boehner used to complain about this too. So it happens in in both parties. I have no idea what Senator Cinema's motivations are. They're they're pretty amorphous and abstract. On Mansion, I think you're generally right. I would turn it in this fashion, which is he has a set of impulses that are driven by his views and also by his voters. He does believe in a, a lot of these things. He he did, during the Trump administration, push back on all of President Trump's efforts to undermine the Affordable Care Act because he believed in health care for his, his constituents. On the other hand, he comes from the second largest coal producing state in the country. The environmental provisions are an issue. On the question, Emily, you raised about specificity versus general. I mean, obviously, it's always better for for candidates or for for politicians to raise generalized boogeymen because then they don't get trapped, you know, not giving elder care um, or not giving child care for families and so forth. So this question of the of inflation and the budget, what will be interesting if it can get argued in public in a way that isn't deeply stupid is it's a really interesting debate, this question of inflation. Is it broad and widespread, or is it as a result of pockets um, relating to the pandemic that has nothing to do with the availability of money? And it'd be interesting to talk that out, because a lot of people remember inflation from the 70s, but this isn't like that, as economists explain it. Then the question is, okay, yeah, but geez, do we, does America really want to go into greater debt? Um, well, debt ain't what it used to be. The Republican Party said, almost zero. And based on where they had been, they said negative amounts about the debt when Donald Trump was ballooning the debt. So it's obviously not something they're that worried about. So when they suddenly become worried about it again, when it becomes a Democratic president, then it's obviously not something they really care about. They're using it just as a tool. And will that be effective? It would be really nice to have that debate out loud. And the final point is the one Bernie Sanders has made for a long time, and will it gain new currency, which is when the banks wanted to get bailed out, Nobody said, oh, the deficit. That's not exactly true. Some people, in fact, in the House, Republicans voted against TARP. But by and large, few people. Yeah, by and large. I mean, it did fail in the House first. So to be fair, there are some people. But by and large, when when moneyed interests uh, are on the chopping block, they find the money. And so the argument is when caregivers and those who need help with two years of college uh, are asking for some help. And this is this is help in theory to sustain the economy and build growth and that kind of thing. They somehow get get the short end. And does that has that argument changed post pandemic when so many of the cracks in the American social structure were uh, illuminated by the pandemic? Right. We've exacerbated inequality so vastly that you would think that the Sanders argument would resonate, but maybe it won't. Uh, I mean, listening to you makes me think, John, that one obvious target for a mansion would be renewable energy funding, because that would play well at home. Um, and I, I can I ask like a very mean spirited question, which has been nagging at me, even though like it is Please. very Scrooge like. So one of the provisions potentially is to expand Medicaid coverage in the states that have refused to do so. Right. I mean, this goes back to the Affordable Care Act and this very generous offer Congress made of paying something like 90 percent of the cost for Medicaid expansion over a period of years. There were states, conservative states that denied this benefit to their folks. So. Is this like bad politically because it takes those conservative politicians off the hook? I mean, 
the obvious response is like, well, no, because years have gone by and people are being denied Medicaid benefits and those are poor people and they don't have the majority of votes in the state and like they should get their benefits. And, you know, at this point, these state legislatures and Republican governors have um, failed to provide them and it's time for Washington to step in. But there is this part of me that just feels like there's a way in which our federalist system <sighs> the, the the state politics are let off the hook by Washington stepping in here. Well, but it's not as though in those states there there are now possible Democratic majorities because right. because of what's happened. It's, it hasn't it hasn't been a political particular political gain for Democrats to to have the Republican governors be Scrooge like. Right. I so, mean, I think the answer is so the like, answer is you should help don't people have the political yeah, power. Right. And so they so, should get their benefits. I just there. But right. Like it's a the incentives are misaligned here. Well, or it's a or it's a admitting defeat in the incentives not working. So if two million or so, it's got to be more than that. I, I saw a figure that said two million people would have been would be affected by having Medicaid in the 12 states. That feels feels low to me. Anyway, if the millions of people who were denied coverage because of the choices of these governors puts no pressure on those governors, that would seem to be a problem in the system. And this is just basically accepting that as a problem in the system is sounds like what you're saying. Yeah. Humph. I've been spending a bunch of time on home health care issues with my parents. And it is, mm. it is to me, stunning. Uh, and, and they're, you know, fortunate they are in a position where they have money and they have the right kind of insurance and so forth. But it's just it's just such a terrible system. And it's if you do not have money or you don't have insurance or both, it's it's almost impossible to get decent home health care because the wages are too low. And even the wages are too low. So there just are not that many people working. But even if the otherwise, it's just there are very few people who can afford to hire somebody to care for someone who is sick. It just it's it's prohibitive totally and also by the way if you as as we had to if you if you look into medicaid coverage in nursing homes and i mean that is its own disastrous and thicket of um and and the and the quality of care that you know your beloved parent has to uh engage in is quite shocking in um and what your basic in the care that they can get in certain institutions, having gone through and looked at a lot of this, um, it's really hard. Um, and and uh, the fact that there's not a greater outcry f- uh, about that and the low wages. I mean, part of this is linked to the low wages for those who work in home health care, who are these angels who, where the wages are quite low. The New York Times had an amazing piece following along one of the home health care workers, um, or maybe she was in a nursing home. I now can't remember, but. You know, the jobs are are incredibly low paying. And the fact that with aging baby boomer parents, there isn't more push for this surprises me. Yeah. The Wall Street Journal and The New York Times this week noticed and commented on a really remarkable trend in American higher education, which is that colleges, which have been increasingly dominated by women or increasingly women are 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 uh, prevalent in on college campuses this has become extreme in the past five years. Women are now 60% of college students. They earn well more than 60% of degrees because men drop out at higher rates. And most alarmingly, men are vanishing from campuses at a stunning rate. So there are 1.5 million fewer college students overall than there were five years ago. And of that 1.5 million who've, who've vanished, almost three quarters, more than a million of them are men. By almost any measure, who is graduating with honors, who is enrolling, who's getting the merit scholarships, who is, you know, leading student governments, who is doing, who is, who is leading student body, women are far ahead on college campuses now. The New York Times had an interesting piece this morning pointing out that even with this drop in male enrollment, however, men still go to college at a much higher rate than they did a generation ago. So there's been an overall trend up of, of college enrollment for everybody. So even though there's a drop, it's a drop on a higher base. Um, Emily, what are the reasons that women are doing so well in college and men appear to be doing so much worse? Man, this is such a tricky topic because it plays right into 
gender stereotypes, right? I mean, I want to trot... So first of all, I feel like we don't really know the answer. But I want to trot out some explanations about how, you know, school in some ways plays to some of the average girl's strengths. You have to sit down, you have to pay attention, you have to behave yourself, especially for younger kids, that those can be things that for some boys are more difficult. And I also wonder if in this college statistic, we're seeing some different gender-based signals about delayed gratification, right? I mean, if you go to college, you are putting off making money. You're putting off kind of starting yourself off as a full adult in the world. And maybe there is a way in which that is something that girls still have an easier time doing than boys. You know, when I was reading about this, one of the explanations was that boys felt a responsibility to help take care of their families during COVID, and so they wanted to go and work at the age of 18. But I don't see why that would apply any less to girls. Yeah. That oh. seemed really odd as, like, a set of assumptions. This, it goes especially when you consider that all the evidence suggests the opposite, which is that the people who are taking care of their families during COVID are the women. So yeah, I don't right, know why exactly. you'd expect it with the 18-year-old boys to be the ones stepping up. The one other thing I want to add, and this point comes from um, Mira Levinson, who's an education professor at Harvard, but she's been looking at this data since COVID, and she says that it's really entry into community colleges and other two-year college programs that are down, while entry to four-year colleges, especially at selective schools, has not dropped very much. So that's another indication that what we're seeing here is class-based. And there's a way in which it's somehow affecting working-class boys in a way that's different from affecting working-class girls. And again, like, I just find it kind of mystifying, maybe because it plays into gender stereotypes, and I'm always trying to fight gender stereotypes. You also have a racial, if you look at the numbers, the Asian, there is no gap between Asian men and women, whereas there is this gap between other races. So the, you can throw that into the mix of complexity here. The ladder to the middle class is comes out of two-year community colleges and state colleges, the places where this is more, uh, this, this difference is more acute, just to underscore your point, Emily, about class. Right. I mean, do you think it's possible that boys still see a path to blue-collar, decently-paying jobs that girls don't see that doesn't require college? Though even to... Yes, you're going to say yes. Totally, yes. And secondarily, there's also a reasonable case to be made that for many people, it's worth more and makes more sense to go into a vocational career based on the way they want to live their lives and their ambitions for themselves than than to go to college. Well, that's true about like some four-year liberal arts degrees, right? But a lot of voc ed is really well served by a two-year degree. And actually, you get seriously marketable skills. And I actually wonder if boys who are choosing to go straight to work as opposed to doing those programs are really deserving themselves and kind of deluded about the economy that they're going into. Again, I just want to emphasize I'm I'm praising voc ed in this, right? Not arguing that everybody should just like get lots of education for its own sake. There's a few remarkable stats that I I wanted to flag. One is that white working and poor working class and poor men are now enrolled at lower rates in college than black, Hispanic, and Asian men of a similar economic background, which is a, a real shift. So that's a that does suggest there's a, also a kind of a maybe a Trumpy effect happening here, which is and a rural urban divide, perhaps. Yeah, and it's important to remember the cost to this. I was just doing a little back of the envelope calculation. So a college degree is worth about a million dollars in extra lifetime earnings, and if we have lost 1.5 million people, 1.5 million people are not in college who were in college five years ago. If the numbers are, the decline is that stark. Now, not every one of those people would have graduated. That's true. But that's roughly $1.5 trillion in lost earning in society just from that tiny little shift, just from that drop. And that's a huge amount of money. Do you think that's right? I'm just going to play like uh, devil's advocate in Brian Kaplan land here, who's written a book kind of against education or against higher ed for its own sake to just oversimplify his argument. I mean, I think one of the things critics like him argue is that what you're seeing in those statistics is a credentialing effect. And if fewer people have those degrees, well, then employers are going to put more resources into giving them the training and the skills-based development they need on the job. And that we've sort of, we keep adding to education without really thinking through its value. I do sometimes wonder about that. And and just 
attaching to that is that what you hear from a lot of companies, corporations, is that they have a huge skills gap, which means that they are whatever. I mean, there are not enough people, but also the people coming out of colleges don't have the skills that they need for their workers. Well, but sure, I, I think that's all true. Sorry, just go ahead. Finish your thought, yeah. John. No, 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 I did. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Emily, that, but that, by that standard, then you don't think there's an issue at all. Like, if, if that's the case, then, like, let everyone drop out of college. That it's not serving people at all. Like, why bother? But well, what if I'm I saying is they that, were getting but if they're dropping out of the, But if they're dropping out of the community colleges and the vocational ed, which is, like, you're saying that's where the decline in the enrollment is. And that's also the point you're saying, oh, that's where actually you can get skills that boost you economically. Then it does yeah, feel like I'm it's a real to- loss. Right. I'm saying two sort of contradictory things, I think, fairly. You caught me on that. But I guess what, if you play out the critic argument, it's that employers will fill in this gap if there's less of the valuable community college to your program development that I was just talking about. Now, that's like an untested hypothesis. We don't really know that that's true, although it's true in the pandemic that employers have increased, or at least some employers, certain training programs and benefits. Here's the sort of teeny bit of skepticism I have. And I honestly, like, this is not really my argument. But I do think it is true in the working world that most of us get really good at a very specific thing if we're lucky. Like, right, we do the same small, narrow thing over and over again. And I mean, this is certainly true of liberal arts college is not that. I mean, yes, you get hopefully good at reading and critical thinking, and those are invaluable skills. Anyone who's interested in doing those things, I like 100% support their pursuing them. In my life, they've been incredibly rewarding. At the same time, like if you are not super into that particular kind of intellectual development, there are other things you can have a really satisfying life doing. And I think often people really do learn them better on the job just by doing them over and over again every day. So I just add that. But we have to find it. There's... If you have come out of high school and you happen to be someone who is would be a great airline mechanic, you would be like it, it's it, you have the skills, your mind is, but you don't have any training in being an airline mechanic. You haven't gotten credentialed at it. You don't haven't done anything. Like how the hell is the airline going to know to take a chance on you or to trust that? Like, right. It's and, a, yeah. It doesn't yeah. work that way. Like, yeah. it, unless you f- happen to have, like, a best friend who's an airline mechanic who recommends you to the folks at Delta, and they're like, yeah, we do have a – we have a, a apprenticeship program. We'll take a chance on you, even though you haven't done any college, you haven't, you know, made an effort, and all you have is your GED or all you have is your high school diploma. It's like – it just – like, that – that miss – the college serves as a kind of – even if it, even if the skills aren't always taught, at least it serves as a as a somewhat of a signaling effect to employers it's so that they don't have device. to do, do the work. Yes, and also it shows perseverance and you know an effort to kind of better your yourself and your prospects that I think employers respond to. It's just that there are other systems to imagine, right? I mean, doesn't Germany have many more apprentice programs sure. than we do? And we should <laughs> absolutely have more apprenticeship programs. Of course, we should. Yes. So yes. a couple of other things to add to the mix, just so we um, put as many dots on the board as possible. Part of this also is increased. Part of these numbers are the result of women participating in college more than they did in the past. And this other thing we should note, of course, that is implicit in everything we say, but might, might not be for some listeners, is obviously the working world is one in which women still have to catch up to the average earning rate of men. So this isn't to suggest that this phenomenon we're talking about um, is the lens through which you should look at all questions of equality with respect to men and women, their fulfillment and earning power. Some people Totally might. good point, and I'm glad you said that. At the same time, I do worry about the effect that this gender skewing will have on this generation, Compl- because it's... To- couldn't, right? agree, couldn't agree more, and I was just going to say, the, the, in the Wall Street Journal article that tipped off a lot of this conversation, the quotes inside of it speak to something we have seen, and, and I feel like we've even talked about on the show before, which is, you know, these young men saying things like, I'm sort of waiting for the light to come on so I can figure out what to do next, or I don't know what I'm going to do, yeah. I just feel <laughs> lost. A gen- there is a generation of young white men who, for whatever reason or another, are lost in their own world and don't see opportunities and of the kind you were just describing, David, whether it, either it's college or training. And, and, I, and that's, that is a problem that can't just... I don't think it's young white men, John. I think it's young men. I don't, I think well, it's, 
that, young, that's for true. young black men it's been like a harder road precisely I, 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 exactly young black men have always faced uh, the challenge it's for young white men who because part of I think part of this and shoot me down is that for a lot of young white men and the, their parents and the people of voting age there's this expectation that the American dream is available to you in black communities there was a systemic message that it was not available to you in many communities so i guess what i'm trying to identify is the newness and the way in which that that difference between expectation and reality may be a part of this picture emily i want to close with, with the last question to you which is what should colleges and universities do about this decline in male enrollment decline in male applications should there be affirmative action for men? Should there be, you know, men's uh, men's houses on campus to help men deal with the problems of being a, a man on, at college? Should there be different programs at universities designed to appeal to men? Or should they just continue with what they're doing? Well, there already is affirmative action for men at a lot of schools. And I am fine with that, actually. Um, I haven't really thought about why I'm fine with it, so maybe it's the wrong instinct. I just feel like that gender balance is like going to cause unhealthy developments for our society writ large, and so I'm okay with trying to address it, um, but someone is welcome to come in and shoot me down on this front. It's not something we talk about a whole lot, but it is definitely happening. I don't know which, if can, I can I just pa- can I pause to just yes. note that one of the things that colleges say, which are practicing this affirmative action, where they're they're allowing men in with lower test scores and making sure that their classes are you know fifty five forty five and not the sixty five thirty five that they would be if you just let in the best candidates overall because the women are so much better. Is that when gender balances get too skewed to women, both women and men stop wanting to go to the college? Yeah, right. Exactly. That's the concern. I mean, I do wish we talked about this more because we get all heated about, you know, some taking account of race into admissions. And that is treated as this huge injustice on the right when, in fact, there are all these boys, a lot of them white, who are benefiting from this gender-based affirmative action. So like the preference for legacies and athletes at selective schools, I would like us to always keep this part of the picture in mind just for political reasons. I'm not sure I think men's houses are the way to keep men in college, but maybe that's wrong. I mean, I think, you know, this is a really good question about what kind of internal culture helps promote learning and stick-to-itiveness in education. It definitely seems like there are some signals missing for boys and men here. Let us go to cocktail chatter. When you're sitting on the porch of your men's house, a.k.a. your fraternity, uh, what would you be chattering about John Dickerson? If you were a young John Dickerson, if you were a young John Dickerson. Oh, God, whatever I would be chattering about would be some incredibly self-obsessed thing that um, would allow you to watch people slowly drift away from me to more pleasing members of the cocktail party. Um, however, now that I'm an enlightened uh, person of, of middle age, um, two things. One is that the Times has a quiz in the opinion section. If America had six parties, which would you belong to? Um, it's a series mm, of qu- questions. I'm so glad you brought this up. 20 questions. Um, and what I, I was like shocked to- where I ended up. <laughs> I ended up in the wrong place, but I understand. I have a theory as to why. So Go ahead, John. you've both uh, very helpfully um, filled out the why I think this is an interesting chatter because it's obviously it's interesting where you where you end up. But it's interesting why you think you ended up there. The questions along the way illuminate politics and the way you think about politics at a in a different way than we normally do, which I think is helpful. Here is my criticism of the New York Times six-party political quiz. It doesn't ask you to rank your priorities. So if you answer with your true beliefs, you could wind up in a place that is not actually where you are because you're not being asked to make any compromises or sacrifices. It should be weighted. That is so smart, and it's so true. Uh, because And it actually exacerbates, in a way, the flaw in the way we think about politics because we, we uh, assume that presidents don't have to prioritize, which is wrong. That's such a great point. I would add a lot of other questions in there, too, that get at the basic questions of society. You know, if you have a fundamental disagreement about the role of government in providing health care, 
you got to kind of work that out first before you can get to healthcare reform. And we sometimes touch on that, but then, and then, but on the other hand, then we kind of get down into the minutia um, without getting at some of those basic questions. So I like the fact that it got at the basic questions and also making people think about where they are uh, is a really useful exercise. So I liked, I liked that. And I would recommend everybody take the quiz and think about the questions they would add to it that they think might be illuminating. The second thing is GabFest listeners for the last five or so years have had a, an additional member of um, our side of the this um, party we have every week who you didn't know about, which who is my dog, George, particularly during the pandemic. He was always in here when I recorded George died while I was away. Um, he was hit by a driver. Um, and I wrote a piece about it in The Atlantic that came out uh, on Thursday. Every writer who has a dog, when the dog dies, feels like they have to write about the dog. And so I was nervous about doing that. But it has been such an emotional thing for our family that um, uh, what could I do? So anyway, you uh, might want to check that out since uh, George was a silent participant in so many gab fests over the years. Hmm. He was a I'm really glad that you brought that up, John. We have been thinking of you with so much compassion. Oh. It's such a sad, hard thing for your family. It is. It is. George was a great presence <laughs> on your Zoom screen. <laughs> Emily, what is your chatter? I have been watching way too much U.S. Open on TV in the last week and a half because this is a mesmerizing tournament. There have been so many five-set matches and three-set matches um, for the men and then for the women, so many upsets. And there are these two young women, I think they're both 19 now, Leila Fernandez and Emma Raducanu, who have just taken the place by storm. It's so appealing to watch. And What's really struck me in this tournament, you know, earlier on, Fernandez upset Naomi Osaka, and Osaka left in this very sorrowful way, which really highlighted the tremendous mental toll that tennis can take. I mean, Osaka's obviously at the very top, but I think for a lot of lower-ranked players, too, there's a way in which the individualistic nature of the sport is just so difficult. And as a, you know, club player, obviously, it's a completely different thing. But I find tennis to be enormously hard. So I really like understand that. But at the same time, to have these two women burst onto the scene has been such a joy. And Fernandez in particular, but both of them, they're really good at getting the crowd involved. I mean, maybe you can argue that it's a little bit uh, self-serving, but they do it in this way that just has so much energy behind it. So anyway, if you're at all interested in tennis, it's a really good tournament to be watching. And of course, on the men's side, the question is whether Novak Djokovic is going to win his calendar year Grand Slam and his like gazillionth title and watching him go after the kind of greatest of all time banner has also been kind of amazing. Uh, my chatter is about a really charming little Twitter video when I was a young dad, my kids watched Blue's Clues, and it was a show I, I only had good feelings about. A lot of the shows my kids watched when they were little, I loathed or came to loathe. But Blue's <laughs> Clues, I always just found winsome and totally winning and cheerful and, and really nice. And it was hosted by, I guess at that point, Joe was the, to Blue is this animated dog and there's clues and there's like Mr. Salt and there's a one human who is in front of the animation who is a, a young man was Joe and then before Joe there had been Steve and Blue's Clues just celebrated its 25th anniversary and for its 25th anniversary Steve who vanished kind of suddenly when he was succeeded by Joe came back and did this really lovely little video and it just it just made me it made me a little weepy and we're gonna play a little bit of it we started out with clues, and now it's what? Student loans, and um, jobs, and families, and some of it has been kind of hard. You know? I know you know. And I wanted to tell you that I, I really couldn't have done all of that without your help. And in fact, all the help that you helped me with when we were younger is still helping me today, right now, and that's super cool. I guess I just wanted to say that after all these years, I never forgot you, ever. 
I want to thank Steve Burns, who was who was Steve, for coming back and check it out if you watch Blues Clues or your kids watch Blues Clues. Listeners, you sent us excellent chatters to at Slate Gabfest, and please keep sending them to us at at Slate Gabfest. We could use your chatters. So this week we're going to highlight a listener chatter from Michael Stagmeister at at that out guy. My chatter is about the article, Schultz Will Sort It, the catchphrase winning the hearts of German voters by Philip Oldman in The Guardian. Germany's in the middle of its federal election campaign, and it's a big one. Angela Merkel is not running anymore, and for the first time since 2005, Germany will have a new chancellor. Everyone expected the campaign to be a lukewarm affair, but it's turned out to be anything but. Since July, there has been a back and forth in the polls. First the Greens in the lead, and then Angela Merkel's conservatives taking back the top position after a number of stumbles by the Green Party candidate. Since then, however, the unlikeliest candidate has emerged as Merkel's prospective successor, Olaf Scholz, candidate of the Social Democrats and Germany's current Minister of Finance. Seemingly no one was excited when Scholz, by all definitions a centrist, was nominated by his party last year. The party's progressive base seemed completely at odds with Scholz. But now Germany is full of billboards proclaiming that Schultz will sort it. And the Social Democrats have taken the lead in the polls for the first time in 17 years. It turns out that after all, despite the reservations, despite the loud progressive base, what German voters seem to want is Schultz, the boring but competent technocrat. I really like this chatter because this guy is just such a, he, he, he could not succeed in American politics. He just looks like this just average, bald, middle-aged dude. Like me, like an average bald middle-aged dude. And he just, but he radiates some kind of competence. And it's nice to know that German voters are still interested in competence. It kind of sucks, though, that the woman who was in charge of the Green Party has had these stumbles that have led to this opening. Yeah, I don't think it's, she might still pull it out. Right. Have you noticed there's so many, the, the, she's 40 years old, that, uh, Jacinta Ardern is whatever, late 30s, the Icelandic prime minister. Uh, she's maybe 36. There are all these women in their late 30s who are coming to the forefront in, in politics in these progressive countries. It's really, I don't know what that, why that age is the moment to, to thrive. Is it different than men would thrive? And isn't it just those societies catching up to equality faster than the states, although the states did have an opportunity to nominate a woman or to elect a woman for president. So. I think that these are, these women are maybe 10 years younger or five years younger than the comparable men would be. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm miss, yeah. missing that. Maybe there's a fearlessness about that generation of women and a willingness of um, other people their age to just assume that they take power. Also, is that around the age of the fictional Danish prime minister in the TV pro, uh, show Borgen? And For sure. Is everyone and just Borgen. following yeah. in her footsteps? Yeah. Because exactly. who would not want to? Yeah. <laughs> totally. Totally. That's our show for today. The Gapfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at @SlateGapfest. Tweet chatter to us there. And please send us your conundrums at slate.com slash conundrum. So we're going to do our conundrum show at the end of the year. But we need your conundrums. Slate.com slash conundrum. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, David Plotz, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Michael K. Williams was an actor who had a number of important roles, but none more striking than Omar Little. He was the stick-up artist on The Wire, the greatest character, perhaps the greatest TV show of our time. He was this gay, ruthless, but lived by a code of honor man who robbed drug dealers of their money and drugs. He stole every scene he was in. It was impossible not to watch him and be compelled by him. He was just enthralling to watch. And and when he died this week, there was an outpouring of, of fond remembrances of his work as an actor, of his work as a human being, of his own struggles with addiction, uh, but particularly around remembering Omar and what Omar meant. And I'm sure I'm not the only person among our uh, in the Gabfest universe who spent some time watching highlights of Omar from the wire and remembering just how 
striking that character was. So we decided to devote our Slate Plus segment to talking about TV characters that have stuck to us that much, TV characters that mean something to us, the TV characters that compelled us in the way that Omar did me, at least. Uh, So anyone want to start? Well, this is such an obvious choice for us and for this show, but um, Mrs. Coach on Friday Night Lights, just like, you know, we're David and I in particular perhaps are fairly obsessed with her. Um, there are many enjoyable things about the very bitter show White Lotus, which has uh, a recent series, but one of them is that Connie Britton is one of the stars of it, and there she is, and I just am so happy to see her wherever and whenever she appears. Yeah, Coach. So Tammy Taylor and Eric Taylor, Coach Coach Taylor and Mrs. Coach, Friday Night Lights are totally on my list. But you know what's funny, Emily? It's not funny. It's kind of sad. Is that I can't watch that show anymore. I when my marriage fell apart, I became unable to watch it because so much of what what it was to me was this portrait of like an, an incredible marriage. It's to the best portrait of a happy marriage that I can think of on TV. Mm-hmm. It was such a pleasure for me to watch and rewatch that show. In fact, I was I was in the middle of rewatching it when my marriage started to fray and I, I haven't been able to look at it since. And it makes me sad. Yeah. I uh, um, shall I jump in to this? Sure. <laughs> well, you know, I, I started to think, Oh, I don't really have any. And then, and then I just, then like it, it unspooled. I mean, when I was, uh, I mean, we were all, we grew up in an age of extremely limited by today's standards choices. Um, and MASH was one of the, I would watch Matt, MASH and Star Trek. I mean, I've probably seen everyone like 60,000 times. McLean Stevenson on MASH and, and Alan Alda. Oh, um, yeah. It, for me, it was a, I mean, Harry, Harry Morgan uh, was great as the... Um, uh, Colonel C- Potter. Colonel uh, 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 Potter. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, was great. But, but I always thought it was a better MASH when McLean Stevenson was on. GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today.